Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. Episode 18. In episode 17, Maddie finally sees Khan for who he is, someone who has been cheating on her. She realizes that he's not for her, and she gives him permission. She sets him free, but he is not pleased by this. So she breaks up with him. And later, her neighbor, Junior, also breaks up with his girlfriend, Beth, and kicks her out of his house along with her two friends, two guys who she had been plotting with to try and get rid of Maddie, to get her to move out and leave her junior alone. And now, episode 18 of A Gentle Thief. Maddie watched the drama unfold from her window. First, Beth came storming out of Junior's house, threw a bag in the backseat of her car, made a defiant, obscene gesture in the direction of Maddie's house, then peeled out of the driveway. Ken and Joey followed, without the gesture, but with a glance in Maddie's general direction. Junior did not come out on the porch. He just closed the door and went back inside. Maddie put her hand up to her mouth, Something big had just happened. That much was obvious. Junior had seemed ready for it when he left her house to go kick Ken and Joey out of his living room. He had had it with them and with Beth. She almost picked up the phone to call him to ask him what happened. But then Maddie decided to give him his space. He'd call her if he needed her. He knew she was there for him. She got up to rinse out the coffee mugs and turn the pot off. Then she stopped and stood there while the kitchen faucet was running. It had been minutes, she realized, many minutes, since she thought about Khan. What a miracle! Just yesterday it seemed like she couldn't get through a single minute without the pain of missing him, hating him, or loving him. Now here she was, just a day later, and she had actually been of support to someone else, focused on someone else's problems, and forgotten all about her own. Maybe that was the key, focusing on someone else's problems. The phone rang, startling her into turning off the faucet. Hello, Maddie answered, expecting to hear Junior's voice. Hello, Maddie, it's Robert. Robert, she said with surprise in her voice. Ex-husband, handsome devil, trusted confidant, remember me? Maddie chuckled. No, I, I didn't mean... How are you? I'm great. Just calling in to see how you are. Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm better. I'm coming up for air. Good. You sound better. Robert sounded a little relieved. You've been on a wild ride these last few months, and I know that son of a gun was no good for you. He's no good for anybody. I know. 
You were right about him, Robert. You had him pegged from the beginning. But I, I guess I had to find it out on my own. The smart ones always do. There was a smile in his voice. So, what you doing? Just calling to check up on me? Maddie asked, cheered by the sound of his voice. Pretty much. I, I thought I'd bring over some Chinese takeout if you felt like company. He sounded just a little nervous as he made the offer. Maddie paused. No, no pressure if you don't, he added. No, no, I'd love that. Come on over, Maddie agreed, and didn't regret it after she hung up. She called him back a minute later. Change your mind already? He answered the phone, assuming it was her. No, I just feel grimy. Can you give me an hour to take a bath? Sure, I always want to support your hygiene. I'll see you in an hour or so. Thanks, Robert. And she hung up. Robert arrived just before seven with a box full of Chinese food. When she opened the door, he said, Prepare for a feast, you fine wench, he said in his best Shakespearean brogue. Maddie laughed and hugged him awkwardly with his arms filled with food. He came in and set the box down on the coffee table. Maddie went to the kitchen for plates and utensils. It smells wonderful, she said, realizing she hadn't eaten in hours or maybe longer. Let's see, he surveyed the offerings. I've got mushu pork, your favorite, sweet and sour chicken, lo mein, beef and broccoli, and what's this? Oh, egg rolls. I got some egg rolls, too. I love the way you order. I get everything we might possibly want and save the rest for leftovers. I love leftovers. I know, he smiled. They dug in, scooping up helpings of this and that onto their plates, sometimes taking bites directly from the container, neither of them paying attention to the plain white rice that always comes with the order. It was gluttony with a smile. They ate in silence, which didn't feel the least bit uncomfortable. What did you see in him? Robert asked, as if he had been wanting to ask that for a long time. Maddie thought for a minute, knowing exactly what Robert wanted to know. Light, she finally answered. Light? he asked incredulously. Yeah. I saw light around him when we first met, and for the first few times we were together after that. I know that sounds a little out there. I thought it was some kind of sign, some spiritual signal that I was supposed to be with him. Robert looked at Maddie kindly. It was never about him, she went on. I get that now. It was about me. I needed something, I guess. Something I couldn't give you. I don't know. You were so good to me, Robert. I loved you. I still do, she said, because it was true. Before she could say another word, Robert leaned over and kissed her on the mouth. Then he paused, so close to her face and waited to see if she'd tell him to stop or not. She didn't. He kissed her again, this time harder. She pulled back away from him. I can't. I I'm sorry, Robert. I just can't. No, I'm sorry. Of, of course. Robert seemed flustered. At that moment, the phone rang. Maddie made no move to answer it. Go ahead. That's probably him, Robert said with a sneer. No, it's not. But I don't care who it is. I don't want to answer it. You might as well. I should be going anyway. 
and he stood up and started putting his jacket on. Don't go like that. I'm glad you came over, and I do love you, but I'm confused. I'm just making things harder for you. That's really been my role in your life, hasn't it? No, just the opposite, Robert. You've made things easier. It's not you. Yeah, it's not you, it's me. I've heard that one before, he said in a rush, not giving her a chance to talk. I'll see you around, kiddo. He pecked her on the cheek to show no hard feelings and headed out the door before she could protest. Mid-June, 2004. Rosie walked into Sophie's office, holding an envelope up in front of her chest like a gesture from The Price is Right. Sophie looked up from her reading. Her initial expression was, I'm knee-deep in it, what do you want? Until she saw the return address on the envelope, Dr. Chambliss, Atlanta, Georgia. The first response from one of the medical examiners, Give me that, Sophie demanded playfully. Rosie milked it for just another second, fanning her face with the envelope, then handed it over. Sophie ripped it open and began scanning the contents. Rosie waited. The letter was far too brief. That was Sophie's initial reaction. After nearly three months, she expected more than a couple of skinny paragraphs. Sophie's face fell. She looked up at Rosie with shock and disappointment. What? Rosie asked. Sophie didn't answer. What does he say? Rosie demanded. Suicide. He says after a thorough review of the file and all supporting documents, he concurs with the original finding of Dr. Harold Levitt that the manner of death of Madeline Ruth Johnson on January 1st, 1984 was suicide. If I have any further questions, please feel free to contact him. Sophie kept staring at the one-page letter. Perhaps if she looked long enough, she'd see something different. Well, you still have two other ones out, right? Rosie tried to sound encouraging. Suicide? How could he possibly believe it was suicide? Didn't he see the gun placed in her hands? Does he think the gun just fell by accident back down onto her chest all neat and tidy like that? Sophie's voice was growing louder. After a blast that blew her brains out, the gun just happened to fall exactly that way? How dainty! What a lovely death! What is wrong with him? You have two other experts, right? He's not your last chance, Rosie tried. Did he even read the file? Sophie kept going, her brows still held up in shock. What about the powder test? Did he see that? How does he explain that? Rosie stood silent. What an idiot! And this is who Dr. Verdad respects. This is whose opinion may sway him to rethink the decision. I might as well just call Ike Johnson right now and tell him, you know, you can just forget it. The last 20 years of your life have been totally wasted on a pipe dream. Your daughter did kill herself. You better just get used to the idea. That'll be another $5,000 in legal fees. Thank you very much. The beginning of tears stung the back of Sophie's eyes. I can't tell him. Sophie's eyes darted around her office. I can't tell him, Rosie. I am not going to tell him. Who, Rick? No, Ike Johnson. I am not going to tell him what Dr. Chambliss said. He doesn't need to know. We're still waiting on the other two doctors. If one of them comes back homicide, we just focus on that one. There's no sense hurting Mr. Johnson like this when it might turn out all right in the end. 
Are you going to call him back today? Rosie asked. She had been trying to get Sophie to call him for two days, but Sophie couldn't bear to tell him she still had no news. Yes, Sophie answered, not at all sure that it was true. Just call him, Sophie. It helps him to hear your voice, to talk to someone who's thinking about his case. I know. You're right. It's just... Sophie touched the corners of her eyes with her fingers to keep the tears away. It's just I wanted so much to have good news for him. I wanted to be able to help him. I mean, it's not like he he wants a lot from us. He's not like so many clients who want millions of dollars right away. Hurry up. Stick it to him. What's the matter with you? All he wants is some doctor in Utah to say his little girl didn't kill herself because he knows she didn't. Is that too much to ask? Maybe, Rosie said honestly. Then you tell him that, because I can't. Sophie grabbed her briefcase from the credenza and stood up. Where are you going? Where are you going? Rosie asked, sounding slightly concerned. Tell Rick I've gone to Cedar City. If there's anything to learn there, I will learn it. And then I'll call Ike Johnson. I'll be back tomorrow. Sophie took two steps out the door, then came back in. Thank you, Rosie. Sophie did not stop on her way out of town. She did not go home and change clothes or pack a bag. She did not call Rick and ask permission. She just got in her car, stopped to fill it up with gas, and got on I-15 heading north. She had no plan. She just had a hunch that there was something she should see there, someone she should talk to. She believed Ike Johnson. She knew that scientifically he could be wrong. It was possible she supposed, that Madeline did actually pull the trigger and shoot herself. It was possible that the gun fell back onto her chest in some kind of ballet move, landing so lightly it could have had a flower arranged next to it. But Sophie didn't think so. She felt Ike Johnson's pain, his persistence to reveal the truth, his desire to right a wrong ignored by so many people for so many years— She didn't reach for her cell phone until she was almost to Glendale. Hi, baby. It's me. She started the message to her husband. I'm on the road right now, headed to Cedar City. I got one of the ME reports back today. It came back suicide. Can you believe that? (sighs) Anyway, I've got it stuck in my head that I need to go to Cedar City, that there is something there that can help Mr. Johnson. So I'm going I'm on my way right now. Please don't worry. I'm fine. I'm a little flustered, but I'm fine. I'm going to talk to some people and look around and be back tomorrow. It may be a total waste of time, but I just have... The voicemail cut her off. She hated that. Sean's voicemail didn't allow a very detailed message, even though his recorded greeting asked you to please leave a detailed message. Sophie thought to call him back and finish it, but she set the phone down on the seat beside her instead. She had said enough. The small southern Utah town held a morbid fascination for Sophie, and sometimes a not-so-morbid one. There seemed to be a kind of magic about a place that revered Shakespeare so widely and publicly. She knew there was a university here as well, and she loved college towns. Sophie pulled into a Wendy's, She got out to stretch. Her legs and lower back were stiff and damp. 
She walked into Wendy's and ordered a single with everything and a Diet Coke. The soda made her think of Rick, a thought she promptly dismissed. After lunch, she drove down 200 North toward the campus of Southern Utah University. The street was so wide you could turn a semi around in it. That probably did happen sometimes, Sophie thought, since Cedar City was the last major town northbound off I-15 for at least a couple of hours. She noticed the little shops, a furniture store with a building that would not win any architecture awards, then a sign pointing to the right for the campus of SUU. Sophie turned and saw the green lawns and sprawling buildings that signaled the college just up ahead. Sophie parked on the broad street and started walking. She thought she might look up Robert Abel, Madeline's ex-husband, to see if he still taught here. Sophie wasn't sure if he was still alive, although she thought Ike Johnson would probably have told her if he had died. And he would have known. Mr. Johnson seemed to know everything that pertained to his daughter's life, short as it was. Sophie came upon a wooden campus directory. She studied it for a while, seeing that the Adams Theater was straight ahead, the playing fields down to the right. She made a mental note of where the classroom buildings were and started walking toward the theater. When she came around the corner and first laid eyes on it, she got chills. Real goosebumps popped up on her arms, still sticky from the heat of the day. It was an interesting shape and style, with turrets reaching up from the roof, each with a single small flag attached. It looked like something out of a King Arthur movie. Sophie approached it with reverence. She read the printed page posted outside one of the gates. This theater was patterned after the Globe Theater, where Shakespeare's plays were originally produced. Its roof opened up to the sky, bringing all of the heat of the sun onto the orchestra section that afternoon. After a time, Sophie wandered past the theater and noticed a co-ed studying on the lawn. Wasn't she terribly warm to be reading that textbook with a highlighter pen outside? She walked down a zigzagging staircase to come out onto a lower part of campus. The grounds were quiet today. She imagined a summer term might just be starting, or only a few weeks into it anyway. She passed the library and noticed something up ahead that looked interesting— it appeared to be a sculpture, or more accurately, a group of sculptures. Sophie approached it with curiosity, her interest growing as she got closer. When she reached it, she got chills for the second time that hour. Sophie was transported inside the circle of the centurium. She was not in Cedar City, Utah. It was not June 2004. This was a spaceless, timeless place, a place of power and secrets, the secrets of these men and women who had changed mankind. Inside her, she felt a sense of greatness. She did not know if it was theirs or hers. Inside, she felt a sense of greatness. She did not know if it was his or hers.